Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast, where we're leading disciples to live authentic, relational, and missional lives. This is the third and final part of our Song of Solomon series. We hope you enjoy. You do. Let me just say that. Just keep that, keep that in mind as you desire to show other people your pictures. No one loves them quite like you do. Um, but however, in doing that, and both looking at those pictures and then in reality having some friends over and making them look at some of the pictures too, um, it, is a, it is a special time to reflect on uh, what God has done in your life and how God has impacted you. Pictures are the way we capture memories and uh, how, we, how we, in our own minds, remind ourselves of, of very important truths. When we see a picture of, of, a, of a kid going through a five-year-old birthday or we see a picture of a very special moment in our lives, it's the way we remind ourselves of the truth. Uh, God also likes pictures. Um, when you look at the Bible, you see several different, several different examples of pictures found throughout Scripture. Uh, communion is a picture. Uh, when we take, take the bread and we take the wine, uh, we are experiencing a picture of Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross for us. Baptism is a picture uh, when we, uh, where we partake in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Uh, Jesus used pictures very frequently to teach about himself. He said, I'm like the bread of life. Um, I am like springs of living water, uh, that we should get our sustenance from Him. We should depend on Him. He says He's the light of the world. Uh, Pictures are all throughout the Scriptures. God uses pictures. Jesus uses pictures to help us understand who He is. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Uh, It shouldn't surprise us that God would make sure He uses pictures to help us understand uh, the nature of who He is and how we should follow Him. And so today we're going to look at one of God's pictures uh, this morning and kind of really try to understand what the picture is as it relates to relationships. So we've been in a series over the last couple of weeks going through the Song of Songs as we've investigated God's plan and God's design for relationships, intimacy with each other. Uh, We've specifically focused on the element so far of how a wife should treat her husband and how a husband should treat her wife, uh, husband should treat his wife. And uh, in so doing, we have, we've seen some pretty crazy stuff. I don't know about you guys, but there are many, many times I had to look down and make sure I was reading the Bible, uh, looking through the Song of Songs. If you haven't read it, uh, I'd encourage you to read the, the book of Song of Songs. Um, there, there are definitely a few blush moments in there. Uh, God does not, in creating Scripture, always keep things as uh, safe and sterile as we might would expect. Uh, God helps, uh, helps us grow and develop in every area of our life. He addresses every issue in our life including intimacy. As we look at Song of Songs and we look at how a wife should treat her husband, how a husband should treat her wife, uh, we saw lots of different um, expressions of intimacy represented. We saw emotional intimacy. Uh, We saw them treating each other as great friends. Uh, We saw physical intimacy. We saw erotic intimacy. We saw several different descriptions in Song of Songs of the kind of relationship God wants us to have as His followers. Uh, the, The overall picture that He has painted for us is one of very significant, a personal, intimate, beautiful, passionate, fiery, even sometimes erotic relationships between a husband and a wife. But you may have been through the series so far, maybe if you're even hearing about the review of the series, you're like, oh no, it's one of those marriage series. I don't want to be one of those marriage series. Maybe it's because of how much you enjoy your marriage, hopefully not, but maybe it's because you are not yet married, or maybe you went through a marriage and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Uh, Maybe it's because you... Uh, maybe it's, it's because the, the whole idea of marriage just kind of bothers you. Maybe you don't even accept the idea of marriage. Well, today what we're going to see is marriage is, is important for us to understand and learn no matter what position in life we are in, whether we are going into marriage, where we are married, married where we uh, are out of a marriage, or maybe we even feel like God's plan for our life is to not be married. 
Uh, no matter what stage you're in, marriage is a powerful picture. It's one of those pictures God likes to pull out of his wallet to help... Uh, People don't do that anymore. It's one of those pictures God's like to, God likes to pull up on his iPhone, uh, on his Instagram account, and to show us so that we understand what does it mean to walk closely to God. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that marriage, as we've seen so far, is a picture of the relationship we're supposed to have with God. Now, before we jump too much into the text, think about what that means. Now, if you've been here today, there have probably been a few moments where the teaching that we've done straight out of Scripture maybe kind of kind of was a little bit uncomfortable, right? I'll tell you, so what happens after you preach, both, uh, both me last week, um, uh, two weeks ago, and then my wife uh, last week. When it's over, you always ask, you know, some, give me some feedback. And in both cases, uh, this actually was with a conversation with Rebecca Holland that I, I think all of this came to light. Here she was like, man, every t- all the time I was teaching, nobody wanted to look at me. They kept looking at the floor. They were, they were I don't know if they were bored. I was, I was like, dear, it was the exact same thing with me the week before. Um, it's simply the topic of discussion makes everyone uncomfortable. Because we have talked about some real things, right? We've talked about how not only our relationships with our spouses meant to be uh, emotionally intimate, um, they're supposed to be uh, great friendships, but the, the Bible teaches us very clearly the physical sexual element of marriage is, is very, very important. And, as in, and it is also as much a part of painting an accurate picture of the relationship God wants to have with us as the emotional or, or friendship side of the intimacy that's in the Bible. So think about all the things we've said. I have went through the pain and suffering of teaching that one Sunday. I'm not going to revisit it for you today. Uh, but think about all the things that we've said over the last couple of weeks. If you've missed it, we should have those up online for you pretty soon. Um, and uh, the, the, the thing is, if, even if you don't want to listen to the messages, go back and read the book. Uh, read through it and understand how God challenges us to display intimacy emotionally, spiritually, and physically. So God likes to show us pictures, and we need to understand what the picture is. So when we come to the book of Song of Songs, we've seen that it's pretty, um, it's pretty intense, it's pretty uh, transparent, it's, it's erotic material in several ways. So it may take us as, as a surprise, what's this book in the Bible for? Why is it here? And when you look to study a book of the Bible, your main question that you're asking yourself is, why did the original author write this book? What was his meaning or her meaning when she put all this material together in Scripture uh, to be a part of Scripture? What, what, what were they trying to tell us? Your idea is not to try to come up with some beautiful idea that you think is meaningful, uh, though that sounds sweet and, and wonderful. Uh, uh, it's, your idea is not to read into the Scripture, read into Bible passages what you think is helpful. The point of reading Scripture, the point of reading the Bible is not to get my perception or Kiersey's perception or Will's perception um, or any other teacher's perception. It's to get the perception, the perspective of Scripture. That's why we read and study Scripture. We at Restoration Church believe that Scripture came from God, that it's God's Word. It was breathed out from God that has no errors, errors in it. And because of that, we can get uniquely, uh, we get uniquely a chance to understand God's plan for life uh, when we read Scripture. And to uncover the meaning of Scripture, we have to understand what the intended author's scriptural meaning was. Not my, not my meaning, reading into it, but what his meaning, her meaning was, and read it out of Scripture. So for us to do that in the book of Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, I want us to just go through a few reviews, a few pieces of the puzzle. And I want us to understand what the meaning of the original author was. Why is this included? It teaches us about how a wife should treat her husband and how a husband should treat her wife, but what's the picture? Or is there a picture? I believe there is, and I believe it's the picture of how Christ wants to uh, love you and how you are to love Christ. The picture of marital intimacy in Song of Songs is a way for Jesus to teach us the kind of relationship we should have with Christ. 
So the first thing is, is that the lover in this book is King Solomon. So uh, you've seen that throughout the book. If uh, We won't go through all this review right now, but uh, you see it several times mentioned right when the beginning of the book begins. In chapter 1, she mentions the king. Uh, later throughout the book, Solomon is brought up in chapter 4 and chapter 5. At the end, in chapter 8, we see that the king is Solomon. Um, that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible oftentimes brings up Solomon as a representative king, as an ideal king in lots of different ways, either David or Solomon. Uh, so Solomon is the lover in, in this book. Another interesting thing about this text that we see is that the lover is often referred to as my beloved. So when we, the, the male figure is often described as my beloved. Now in, in Hebrew, the word my beloved would be spelled out DVD. Now that's not something that you used to use and you used to put into a little box and you slide it in there at silver and at circle and you watch movies on it. Uh, but the Hebrew word for my beloved is D, is, would be in Hebrew DVD. Uh, if, you, if you've never heard this before, I'll share this with you. Um, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So uh, in its original form, the way it was originally written. So this would have been the word for my beloved. Now, in English, even, that looks like the word David, doesn't it? If you don't automatically get caught up in the idea, it's DVD. But my beloved is DVD in Hebrew, and uh, it's the same exact word, the same consonants, DVD, as the literal Hebrew name David. Uh, so when we see over and over and over uh, the, the lover, the male figure in this poem referred to as my beloved... He's really being referred to not as just my beloved, which is the accurate translation, but as David. So the sum of that is, is that both David and Solomon are represented in this book. Uh, David as the son of da uh, Solomon as the son of David are used repeatedly in Song of Songs, but they are also used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament to prefigure the Messiah or Christ. Oftentimes you'll see this in the book of Psalms, you see this in Isaiah, you see this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, an author will be writing several hundred years after King David, who was one of the kings of Israel a long time before Jesus was born. Or Solomon, who was David's son, uh, the son of David. An author in the Old Testament will use one of these two characters and describe them as a way to describe the future coming Messiah. We'll see some of that more specifically here in a minute. But the reason why we know it's the case is because they are writing several hundred years after David or several hundred years after Solomon to teach us about a Messiah who is still not yet yet come. It's, it's very frequent in the, in the Old Testament that um, great models, prophets, priests, kings are used to teach us about, as we read the Old Testament, about the Messiah who will, who will be coming in the future for them from their perspective before Christ. Uh, the, the Bible says at the end of, end of the Torah and, and Deuteronomy that there will be another pro a prophet coming like Moses and he will be the one who fulfills all the things that are promised in the book of the Torah or uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So all throughout Scripture, David and Solomon are used as prefigures of Christ. And here, right here in Song of Songs, um, this text teaches us repeatedly about this person who is now post after David and Solomon, who is like David and Solomon, uh, to prefigure the Messiah in Christ. So the next question is, that's who the lover is. Who is who's the girl? Who's the wife in this picture? Well, to understand that, we have to look at a few other texts um, to understand what's going on and to see who the... The female uh, is an example of. The first one comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. You'll have it on the screen. If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, you can do that as well. It says this in verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, having a very great uh, retinue and 
camels bearing spices. I don't know what retinue means. I, have to, I should have looked that one up right there. Never heard that word before. Camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. I don't think I'm supposed to admit that out loud, am I? Okay, note, note to self. Um, and when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. He took her breath away. So what we see in this text is a description of when Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. Tradition is that this Queen of Sheba ends up becoming a wife of Solomon and that the Song of Songs is about her. Now, I will say, at this point, you have no reason to believe that that's in the text. Because we haven't seen that that's in the text. We just know that tradition says that. However, if we go to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 5 through 7, we'll read it together in a second. Let me set it up for you. Uh, we see a very similar description of what we see in 2 Chronicles. Not only do we see a very similar description of what we see in 2 Chronicles, but we see several references that connect us back to the Song of Songs. There are over 10 different parallel references in Isaiah 60 that are also found in, in Song of Songs. As a matter of fact, most of these parallel connections... Same words. Uh, when I say parallel connections, what I mean is they're the same words used in Isaiah 60 that are used in Song of Songs. And there are words that aren't used in other places throughout the Scripture. So that tells us that these two texts are meant to be read together. That one helps us understand the other. Uh, because Isaiah comes first in the Hebrew Bible, what that, what that would tell me is, is that for me to understand Song of Songs is I need to understand Isaiah 60. So Isaiah 60 is the first part of, or the first version of Song of Songs. And now when I get to Song of Songs, I go, huh, it's really about Isaiah 60. Um, I would love to be able to read Isaiah 59, 60, and 61 together, because the whole thing is one big picture. But just for our time today, verses 5 through 7, it says this, Then you will see and be radiant. It's exactly the same phrase in Song of Songs where she describes her beloved as, as radiant and then radiant. And your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of nations will come to you. Caravans of camels. Sound like what we just read? You remember that? We just talked about caravans of camels. The word retinue is not in this text, so I'm okay. I'm okay with this one. Uh, caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. All of them will come from where? Sheba. Where did the queen come from? Sheba. Very good. Uh, they will, you're not 40. You guys can remember things between three minutes. They will carry gold and frankincense. Uh, and proclaim the praise of the Lord. What did she bring with her? Gold and frankincense. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. Where was, uh, this, is, this is a hard test, because it's going to take us back to three weeks ago. In Song of Songs, chapter 1, she was, she was, a shep, she was helping her brothers uh, keep the vineyards, and she had sheep, and they were from what town? Kedar, thank you, good job. And the flocks of Kedar, you should be a pastor. I'm just telling you, I, I see it in your life, brother. All right, good deal. All right, good deal. Um, and the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of, of Nebioth uh, will serve you and go on my altar as acceptable sacrifice. I will glorify my beautiful house. So what's going on? So we saw in Second Chronicles a story of Sheba coming up, bringing gold and frankincense. We see in Song of Songs several poetic images describing gold and, and myrrh and frankincense and the, and the shepherds of Kedar and all these different things that are mentioned, some of which we read now. And if we kept reading in Isaiah 60, we would see several more connections, the same words being used between these different texts. Uh, when we see these comparisons, what that tells us is that whatever Isaiah 60 is talking about, 
Song of Songs is talking about. And what is Isaiah 60 talking about? Now, I don't have time to show all of, We're not going to teach too much on Isaiah 60 today, but it's important for you just to see it. Read it later. You'll, you'll, your mind will be blown. Look, starting in chapter 59, verse 1, reading all the way through the end of chapter 61, you discover that Isaiah 60 is talking about the time that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and bring restoration to Israel. He will restore Israel to the same state and all those who follow the Messiah to the same state that the Garden, Garden of Eden originally was in. And how would we describe that? Matter of fact, let me pause on that, that one note and say this. How often does the Song of Songs use, use garden imagery to describe intimacy? Now, if you've been paying attention over the last couple of weeks, you know that's a lie. If you haven't read it in a while, if you weren't here, go back and read it. Over and over and over, the Song of Songs uses garden imagery to describe the intimacy between the lover and his beloved. That's not an accident. That helps us understand that the relationship between the lover and his beloved is a picture of this restoration that the Messiah wants to bring. A restoration that brings us not just back to, or not just um, uh, from the thought of a millennial reign of Christ or the kingdom of Christ coming, but all the way back to the garden. It's a restoration of humankind, of mankind, back to the way we were created. Where we were in, in God's presence constantly and continually. Where we were intimate with God. Where we were described even in our personal relationships as naked and not ashamed. Think about what that means for a second. Little, little side, side note for a second, naked and not ashamed. For you to be known, radically known, so much so that someone could be said of you that they know you with, in, in all, of your, all of your weaknesses and all of your infirmities and all of your sin and all of your, all of your struggles. That's, that's what it means to be known uh, in the sense of being naked. But to be known that well, to be known that deeply, to no, be known with that much transparency and vulnerability and to still have no shame. That is the definition of both the intimacy God wants to bring amongst people that follow Him, and the intimacy that He wants to bring to you in His relationship and friendship between you and Him. That's the beauty of the intimacy Jesus wants to restore us to. So, that was a lot. Let's take a breath. If you didn't get all those connections, it's Okay. Um, I would challenge you, maybe make a note to yourself, read Isaiah 59 through 61, read Song of Songs. It's a great uh, passage just to study. The basic idea is this, is that the intimacy we see pictured, and we've heard explained and described for the last two weeks in Song of Songs, emotional, friendship intimacy, physical intimacy, erotic intimacy, are all meant to be pictures of the kind of relationship we as followers of Jesus are to have with Jesus. How intimate is your relationship with Christ? Now again, it's just a picture. It's just a picture, right? But how intimate is your relationship with Jesus? Uh, one, one last note on this text I forgot to mention, but it is important uh, for those of us who are theological nerds anyway. Uh, Sheba represents, Sheba was, true or false, Sheba was a part of the nation of Israel. False. Sheba represents the nations, the Gentiles, us coming to the king. She is a picture of us presenting ourselves to the beloved. So here's a few uh, application points. Now I've got a few. You could have several more, right? I know you could, but here are a few of them. We are saved for intimacy. 
You hear uh, people who teach the Bible talk about getting saved, right? You know, when were you saved? I got saved when I was 10 years old. I trusted Jesus uh, 30 years ago to save me from my sins. You hear the word saved. And that implies uh, two things. One of which we're pretty good at emphasizing. It means we are saved from something, right? We are saved from God's wrath. We were God's enemies. Um, we, we were, God was, the Bible teaches us that if you're outside of Christ, God's against you. But in Christ, once we are saved, we are not only saved from God's wrath by His grace, we are saved from those negatives. That's why it's good news. If there was no bad news, there would be no good news. The good news becomes less, by the way, if, we don't, if we're not real honest about the bad news. Sorry, that's another sermon. We're saved from God's wrath, but we're saved to, through God's grace, to intimacy with God. That's what Song of Songs says. We're not, we're not saved to come to church. We're not saved to sing songs just because it's what we're supposed to do. We're not, we're not saved to do, do commands or to be, be good people and stop being bad people. We are saved, according to Song of Songs, for a, a, a powerful, passionate, intimate relationship with Jesus. Of which our marriages should be a picture of. Which means this, our marriages should almost get to the point of our relationship we have with Jesus. The friendship, the intimacy, the emotion, all the passion that's in your relationship with, whether maybe it's a girlfriend, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's, a, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, all of those things should, should kind of sort of represent our relationship with Jesus. But our relationship and our intimacy with Jesus should go so much, far, uh, so much further and above and beyond that. Right? It shouldn't be the opposite. It shouldn't be to where we go, man, I wish I had my relationship with Jesus as good as I had it with this friend or this spouse or this girlfriend or this boyfriend. It should be the opposite. You are saved for intimacy. True godliness is intimacy. Um, when we talk about becoming a person who's spiritual or a godly person, a lot of times we're thinking about what they do and how they behave. Do they say yes? Do they say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things? Um, are, they, are they good people? Are they moral people? Do they, uh, are they, do they smile and, and wave at their neighbor? Uh, do, they, do they go to the kind of movies I think are good? Do they wear the kind of t-shirts that I think they should? All those kind of things. What this text teaches us is that while all of those things are important, they are not ultimately important, and they are not the cause of themselves. Godliness, true godliness, is intimacy. And the, the next point is important to hear after the one you just heard. Intimacy is the key to fruitfulness. So, if, so in the picture of marriage, in the picture of, of, of physical intimacy, the result of physical intimacy is fruitfulness. This is a picture of the relationship we're supposed to have with Christ. Our intimacy with Jesus, closeness to Him, is what allows us to be fruitful as followers of Jesus. It reminds us of another picture that Jesus gives to teach, right? The picture of the, the branch abiding in the vine, and when the branch abides in the vine, it will produce what? Fruit, you abide in me, you will, produce, you will produce much fruit. Fruitfulness is a result of intimacy. Fruitfulness is not a result of trying to be fruitful. Obedience, righteousness, holiness, godliness, obeying God's commands, morality, they are not things you will discover by, find, by, by chasing them, by pursuing them. You will only find them as a result of, a fruit of, pursuing intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy is the key of fruitfulness. And the last thing, and we'll go through this one real quickly because we're, we're almost out of time. 
Meditating on Scripture is the key to intimacy. So, in order to cover this point effectively, and it's a very important point for us to get, I've got about 10 minutes of material that I'm going to squeeze into five minutes. Um, I heard a stat recently that said, um, I was sharing this one with somebody last week as well, that said we, we speak on average of about 200, 200 to 250 words per minute, and we listen on average of about 500 words per minute. I'm going to make up that margin in the next five minutes. Is that, is that cool? All right, good deal. That means you've got to pay attention. All right, meditating on Scripture is the key to intimacy. So when we look at how the Old Testament is put together, uh, the, the Bible that Jesus used, we might would call that the Hebrew Bible or or someone, you may have heard this phrase, the Tanakh. Uh, the, the Old Testament that Jesus used had the same books in it we have, but they were in a different order. And that order actually is very important to the meaning of the books we read. Uh, there were three different sections of that book, uh, of the Hebrew Bible, and we still have that Hebrew Bible today, by the way, or we understand the order. Uh, you're about to see some of that. The Hebrew Bible was originally written in as Law, Prophets, and Writings. Now, there are fancier words for that, but we won't get into that today. Law, Prophets, and Writings. The Law is the first five books of the Bible. You might have heard it referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. The Prophets are starting with Joshua, Joshua going all the way through the, what we would call the major prophets and includes uh, things like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And then the Writings start with Psal- the, the book of Psalms and then go through some other texts. Let me show you what that looks like real quickly. Hopefully it's not too small. Let's see. This next one that comes up. All right, it's pretty small. Um, good thing I'm standing up here. So the, uh, the, the psalm starts this out at the, at the book of the writings, and it's poems about a future king who meditates on Scripture. You know your Bible, you know Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 are meant to be read together, and that the man who uh, meditates on the law of the Lord day and night is not just any man, it's not the ideal man, it's a, it's a king, Psalms 2 tells us, that would then be, uh, the, uh, be crucified and resurrected, and that's who, who is there. So that's the Psalms. It starts out this book. Uh, It goes on to tell us that, and so keep that in the back of your mind. It goes on to the next book in the Hebrew Bible is Job. That's a little different in your Bible. Uh, A story about a man who embodies wisdom. The chief characteristic of Job, if you read through it several different different times carefully, is you understand that he is considered a man who is uh, uh, full of wisdom and understanding. The third book is Proverbs. Uh, That's the next book in the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus would have read. It's a collection of sayings about wisdom where wisdom is personified as a godly woman. So there's a a back and forth in the book of Proverbs between an ungodly lady and a godly lady who represents wisdom and then foolishness, back and forth, all the way until you get to the very end of Proverbs 31, where the, the famous Proverbs 31 woman, an, an excellent, excellent wife, um, is valued far above rubies uh, to, to kind of close out this personification. Uh, Ruth, an example of this guy. Matter of fact, let me show you something. Uh, we'll probably have to skip ahead. Proverbs 31.10, uh, on the slide deck, if you mind skipping ahead to that one. Uh, Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. And then it goes on to say in Ruth... Uh, chapter 3, verse 11, Ruth personifies this, this godly woman, this, this woman above excellency, uh, this, this wise woman. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I'll do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. A bold and excellent woman, excellent wife and, and um, worthy woman because in Hebrew they're the exact same phrase. Only two times in the entire Hebrew Bible that these two phrases are used. And they're used at the end of the book of Proverbs, and they're used at the beginning of the book of Ruth, practically at the beginning, because the, the author wants us to understand that Ruth is a picture of what we've seen in Proverbs 31 of this godly wise woman who has been a picture of what wisdom is 
uh, throughout the entire book of Proverbs. So we have Job representing pro- uh, wisdom, Proverbs telling us a little bit more specifically about wisdom, and then Ruth pictures uh, wisdom as well. And then as we keep going, kind of out of the middle of nowhere, we'll come back to it. Song of Songs, a story about two lovers. And then Ecclesiastes uh, goes on to tell us, comparison between valuable wisdom to useless wisdom. Uh, for those of us who have read, you've read Ecclesiastes, you know it compares like uh, human wisdom to godly wisdom. Lamentations, the next book, and we're almost to the end of this part of it. Lamentations, a collection of poems lamenting the state of the daughters of Zion. Now, how many, where else did we hear about the, the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem? Does anybody remember? Song of Solomon, right? We've heard about it several times in the Song of Songs. There's these, there's these ladies, and, and they're, they're, they are under, in this text, under severe judgment because they didn't have wisdom. And then in the book of Daniel, and this is the last one we'll get to today, but this is kind of an important section of the end of the Hebrew Bible. Daniel, who is then again seen as this final example of wisdom. It starts out the book, chapter, uh, chapter 1 in Daniel, where it talks about him being uh, chosen amongst uh, those of, of the people of Israel who are wise and have understanding. And then we get to understand why he was wise. Chapter 1, verse three, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. As you look through the book of Daniel, you, you may ask yourself the question, well, what made him so wise? In the first year of Darius, Daniel 9, chapter 1, verses 2, uh, 1 through 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azurus, by descent a Mede, who was um, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived, it's the same word that was used, is used perceived there, is the same word that's used to describe Job as wise and having understanding. It's the same word that's used throughout the book of Proverbs to describe this wise and understanding lady. Uh, so, so he is saying that this is what it means to be wise, wise, and this is what he's doing. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what's going on here? So what is happening is that Daniel is sitting here reading the book of Jeremiah. And he's studying the book of Jeremiah, and he gets to a portion of Jeremiah that says there's going to be seven years of desolation that you're going to have to go through. And as he meditates and reflects on that scripture, he begins to understand that those 70 years are not just 70, 365-day years, but 70 weeks of years. And he's able to, through his study and meditation on scripture, understand Jeremiah's vision of, of, of the future his teaching and text about the future wasn't just about 70 years, but was truly about the coming of the Messiah. So much so that the, the Daniel, written hundreds of years before Jesus came, is able to give us the exact number of years between the time of the restoring of the wall of Jerusalem to the time Christ came uh, to the earth and was crucified. Why? Because he was meditating on Scripture. Basically what we see is through this, this list of books... When we see that whole big list, starting with the Psalms, going through Job, Proverbs, etc., we see right at the end the big idea of what wisdom, where wisdom comes from, and how this intimacy with Jesus, the foundation this intimacy with Jesus is built on. It's built on meditating on the Scripture in the same way Daniel was. Meditating on the Scripture in the same way that this, this blessed man in Psalm 1 models for us. So when we look back on the Song of Songs, and we see in it this beautiful picture of the intimacy Jesus wants us to have. It is a challenge to us. It is a call to us into deeper, more real, authentic intimacy with Jesus. 
than I'm going to venture to say most of us experience. And so your question may be, where do I start? Is start by meditating on scriptures the same way Daniel did. This poem right here in the middle of it paints an amazing picture. Daniel tells us the key. The key is studying, reading, meditating on scriptures. That's what leads us into this kind of uh, friendly, intimate, passionate walk with Jesus Christ. That's what you're invited in today. Wherever you walked into this room, however you walked into this room, marriage is just a small, shadowy, blurry glimpse of what you can have with Jesus Christ. Whether you're a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a friend, a best friend, a son, a daughter, a mom or a dad, or, or none of the above, all of those things are shadowy, blurry pictures of why you were created and why you were saved. When Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, He took away your sin. He removed it. He made it a non-issue. He pardoned you. He forgave you. He didn't just forgive you so that you didn't have to suffer God's wrath. He forgave you and gave you mercy and grace so that you could be brought into a friendship, a relationship, an intimate, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. One that is so powerful and so big and so glorious that even the greatest, most, uh, most romantic, most erotic love song of all time is still just a dim, blurry picture of what your relationship with Jesus could be, of the relationship Jesus invites you into today. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more in this series or learn more about our church, you can visit us online at www.restorationchurch.us or follow us on Facebook at RestorationDCH.